Welcome to the Faith and More podcast. This is a trans-denominational podcast. All are welcome and safe here, no matter what your faith is or isn't. My name is Reverend Angel Wise, and I'll be your host. I am an ordained licensed minister with the Fellowship of Celtic Catholic Churches International, founder and director of the Oblix Perpetual Light, a life coach, intuitive healer, and Kabbalist. I firmly believe this divine works through people every day to help us. These angels and saints are so very humble, many of us don't know they exist or existed. Each week we'll explore the lives of these amazing beings. We will also explore topics that can help your faith, no matter what it is or isn't. The goal of this show is to inspire, encourage, educate, uplift, strengthen, and heal you and your faith, no matter what it is or isn't. So be sure to follow and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, everyone. How are you all doing? I know it's been rough, hasn't it? It's spring is in the air and people don't seem to be acting. Well, when do people ever act normally anymore? But you, I'm sure you feel and know what I'm, what I'm pointing at is that, you know, something tends to happen with people uh, after the winter months and, and uh, if, you know, the warmer weather comes and but I guess if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, you're getting ready for, you know, your fall. You're into fall. So you're coming off of summer going into fall. So maybe people are getting ready for hibernation where you're at, hopefully. <laughs> They'll cal- they're calming down other than ramping up. Uh, but anyway, thank you all so very much for being here. If you're new to the show, welcome. It is a great blessing to have you here with us. I'm so happy you found us. And speaking of finding, I so hope and pray that you find everything you're looking for on a podcast, especially a faith-based podcast here and more. And if you're returning, infinite thanks, blessings, and love to all of our longtime, hardcore, uh, loving brothers and sisters uh, that continuously show up and listen week after week, no matter what the topic is. You all are saints in my book. So last week we talked about uh, Rabbi Shmuley. Okay, so that gave us a little taste, a little bit of an introduction into uh, Judaism and into the Jewish faith. And I thought it would be good to just continue on that line since we it's fresh in our hearts and minds um, and explore one of one of the greatest um Kabbalah masters and saints. I guess Jewish people don't have saints, but um, anyway, one of the greatest Kabbalah masters uh, ever, ever. And his his title is the Baal Shem. Excuse me, the I better get this right, huh? The Baal Shem Tov. And we'll explain as we go into his story what his name means and what his real name is, or I should say his birth name uh, is, and we will go from there and. He is, uh, yeah, I've got to do it. Warning, warning, warning the following, the following could, could be considered Yeah, I'm sorry, folks. I had to do it because, yeah, he's all that and a bag of chips, as they used to say, probably about 30 years ago, 25 years ago. But to the, the kids don't say that anymore. I don't know what they say now. But anyway, I'm going to be reading a brief biography of Baal Shem Tov, 
and also um, some, just three of the many, many stories, um, um, really amazing, truly amazing and fantastical stories of Baal Shem Tov. Um, the article that I'm reading from on the biography was written by Peretz Golding, and all of the information I'll be covering is coming from Chabad.org. And I will be sure, as always, to have links to everything in the show description. So be sure to check it out because there is so much more information, not just on Baal Shem Tov, but everything Kabbalah there and more. So Rabbi Israel Baal Shem Tov, which literally means Baal Shem Tov means Master of the Good Name, also known by the acronym Beshet, B-E-S-H-T, was the Eastern European 18th century founder of the Hasidic movement. The Baal Shem Tov was a leader who revolutionized Jewish thought and breathed new life into a fainting nation. The effects of his teachings continue to be felt today, both by his direct followers, known as Hasidim, and by followers of all streams, streams excuse me, of Jewish thought who have been deeply impacted by his teachings and philosophy. The following is a brief biography of this legendary figure. And yes, you can just do a Google search. Here I go. Get the marbles out of my mouth. You can just do a Google search on Baal Shem Tov and so much comes up. I mean, so many great masters, rabbis, and um, Kabbalists today um, so still follow the teachings and, and the ways of Baal Shem Tov. And, and I'm sure once I finish this show, you will be like, wow, you know, another amazing person that I had no idea about. And maybe it will scratch an itch that you didn't know you had uh, for Kabbalah uh, in studying that. If not, it will give you some more information about another great being from another great faith. And even though he is a Kabbalist, he was also very Jewish. So as we've talked about, um, Kabbalah is not a religion. It is a way of life, and it can be incorporated into any faith. There are um, so you know, those who are Jewish that follow Kabbalah, spell it with a K. It starts with a K. Uh, people who are Christian that incorporate uh, Kabbalah into the Christianity, it starts with a C. And those of uh, the nature faiths who incorporate Kabbalah into their faith, it starts with a Q. It begins with a Q. It's spelt with a Q. So there you have just some examples. And it's good that we are finally after what, in the middle of, or heading towards the middle of five seasons, uh, finally getting around to some people of the Jewish faith. It is such an incredible, rich um, tapestry of so many amazing masters and teachers. And, um, you know, he was the beginning of the Hasidic movement of uh, Judaism, um, Baal Shem Tov was, in just like Christianity, Roman Catholicism, um, and all other faiths, really, there's different branches that come off of that faith. You know, you've got Roman Catholics, you've got Orthodox Catholics, you've got Eastern Catholics, you've got uh, Russian Catholics. And, and see what I'm saying? And Judaism is, or Judaism, however you want to pronounce it, is no different. It has many branches as well. And 
you know, it's again, ice cream is ice cream. The basis of ice cream is the same, but there are many flavors for many types of people. And there are flavors that appeal to everybody. If you like French vanilla, that's great. But some other people love Neapolitan and don't like French vanilla. Some people love chocolate. Some like dark chocolate. Some See, it's all the flavors of faith in one. So during the late 17th century, European Jews were still reeling from the devastation wrought by the Klementsky programs or pogroms. Uh, it's spelled K-H-M-E-L-N-I-T-S-K-Y, pogroms. And that was between 1648 and 1649. The massacres had left tens of thousands of Jews dead and the grief-stricken survivors struggled to rebuild their broken lives and communities. Okay, I just took a second to look that up. The, I'm sorry, I can't pronounce it. Kmelnitsky pogroms. And that's also known as the Polish War. And it was a holocaust. Yeah, the, the poor Jews had a holocaust before the World War II holocaust that we're familiar with. So it was a... Um, riot of people uprising against Jews, attacking and killing them. And this was people versus people. This wasn't necessarily from what I just gathered. Anyone that knows more, please feel free to correct me, um, was not uh, something that was a um, government thing. This was people versus people. But no doubt the government had something to do with it. But anyway, that's what that was. In the wake of the pogroms, the infamous Shabtai Zvi led thousands of despairing Jews to believe that he was the long-awaited Messiah destined to redeem them from exile. Many Jews were inspired with the hope that their suffering would soon end. But after Shabtai Zvi turned out to be a fraud, he converted to Islam under pressure from the Ottoman Turks. They were plunged back into the bitter sweet, or excuse me, bitter reality of life. So those of you who are studying or have studied um, the Jewish faith in uh, Kabbalah uh, have heard of Shabtai Zvi. It's S-H-A-B-T-A-I-Z-V-I. And there is so much conflicting about this uh, guy that um, he was a prophet and a mystic, but he was saying that he was the Messiah. And he was leading a lot of people um, to them believing that he was the Messiah. Uh, Jesus, a.k.a. Jesus, what Christians believe their Messiah to be is Jesus. Um, the Jewish people believed, you know, a lot of Jewish people believe that Shabtai Zvi was their Jesus. And, um, you know, again, like I said, I, I'm not going to get into this because I believe it's up to people personally. I have not dug and investigated into him enough to uh, make a decision or judgment. And I shouldn't. It's not up to me. I mean, um, it's up to you, you know, if you get into this or delve into this to discover whether he was or was not who he claimed to be. Uh, but anyway, so, you know, for just a moment, just a moment, a flash, you know, um, a lot of Jewish people had hope that, you know, here was the Messiah that was going to lead them to freedom, and that did not happen. So 
Of course, again, their world came crashing back down on them. So a rift developed between the learned and unlearned Jews to the point that two groups prayed at separate synagogues. You know, after the pogroms, many families were left without a livelihood, and the vast majority of children were forced to abandon their Torah study at a very young age, sometimes as young as five or six years old, to help provide for their families. So what that means is Torah study is, Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible. And to Jewish people, the Torah, studying the Torah is like going to school. It is going to school. Uh, so when, you know, it's a Catholic school. When you, you're, you're sending your children to a Catholic school or a Christian school, you know, they're learning a curriculum, but they're also learning their faith. And that's the same thing that's going on here. So here we have huge amounts of children in poverty um, that aren't able to go to school because they've got to work to help support their families. And this is going back to as young as five and six years old. Could you just imagine if any of you have children that are listening five between the ages of five and six or have grandchildren or great grandchildren between the ages of five and six, look at them and just imagine that child having to go out and get a job to help support the family. And this was the Jewish reality at that time. I mean, to us, it's ex especially in today's age, it's ex it's shocking, you know. And and of course, there's laws against that now. But it's that was the life back then, and that's how people did what they did to survive. This continues by saying only the wealthy, far and few between could afford a proper Torah education for their children. This resulted in a generation of largely ignorant, yet pious and devoted Jews who were, for the most part, neglected and scorned by the learned elite, the Talmudists. A rift developed between the learned and the unlearned Jews to the point that in many towns, the two groups prayed at separate synagogues. So this created division amongst the Jewish people. I mean, here they just came out of a Holocaust where they should have been united. And yet this drove a huge wedge between the classes, you know, the rich and the poor. Against this troubling backdrop in the small Polish town of Plost, Elizer and his wife, Sarah, lived a life of simple piety, serving God with a pure heart. Although seemingly unlearned, Elizer was actually a member of the Fellowship of Hidden Zedekim, a group of unusually gifted and devoted Jews who, disguised as simple people, dedicated their lives to improving the plight of their Jewish brethren, both spiritually and materially. So this is something you learn about or you see a lot in Kabbalah is this uh, Zadikim, uh, people who are um, Zadikist, who are very humble and very pious people that are very quiet, very low key, and you would not know what they truly are. Um, they're almost like covert angels, I guess. It's the best, one of the best Western ways to explain them, but it's the story here is going to continue and, and share more about what the Zadokim are. And it's it, they're truly beautiful beings. So in their old age, on the 18th of Elul, 54, 58. Now, 
the Jewish calendar is completely different than the Western calendar. Uh, so 5458 translates to 1698 on the Western calendar. So in their old age, Eliza and Sarah gave birth to their only child, Israel. Now, isn't that something similar to um, John the Baptist? Uh, mother and father were quite elderly when they had him. And um, what a gift and blessing um, John the Baptist was. And the same thing with uh, Baal Shem Tov, which we'll get into here for just a minute. And, excuse me, in just a minute. The child was destined to infuse vitality into a suffering, depressed people. His name Israel is also the name of the Jewish people. His birth would serve as a wake-up call for a nation deep in a spiritual slumber. When Israel was five years old, there's that number again. Remember, between five and six years old, kids were going off to work for their families or to support their families. Both his mother and father died. Before his death, Eliezer called his son Israel to his bedside and told him, Fear no one but God. Love every Jew with all your heart and soul, no matter who he is. These two directives would serve as the basis of Israel's service of God and future teachings. The Jewish community of Tlost adopted the young orphan, providing him with his basic needs, often after the conclusion of his studies at the local heder, a Jewish school, Israel would wander into the fields and forests that surrounded the village. It was in this picturesque setting, secluded and removed from the bustle of everyday life, that Israel was able to meditate and recognize the wonders of God's creation. So the whole community in Telos, T-L-O-S-T-E, adopted Israel. And so, you know, he didn't have to, you know, of course, no doubt he suffered without having a mother and father, but, you know, he didn't have to be subjugated to an adoption place or some kind of slum or something, you know, back in those days, um, you know, orphans, an orphan's life was very horrible. On one such excursion, some two years after his parents passed, okay, so he's about seven years old, Little Israel chanced upon a saintly man praying in the forest. After introducing himself, Israel and the elderly man sat quietly in the forest and studied the holy words of the Talmud. The man's scholarship, quality of character, and humility made it apparent that he was a hidden Zadok. Israel joined him on his wanderings, and they meandered from village to village, town to town, Israel's mentor, all the time posing as a simple peddler, much of their time was spent in intense study and fervent prayer. Alas, Israel would never learn the identity of this mysterious man. So there we have fantastical number one. You know, Israel goes out into the woods, into the forest quite often to meditate and contemplate and be closer with um, Hashem which the, that's the Hebrews uh, word for God. Um, and here's this guy just appears out of nowhere who had never been there before, or he had never seen before at the tender age of seven. And in all his seven years, he never had seen this guy before. And this guy takes him under his wing 
and begins to teach him. And he travels with this man and learns so much from him. However, he never learns the man's name or his identity. Now, to me, that's got, you know, God, Hashem, Adonai, Allah, again, whatever you want to label the universe, <laughs> it's got it written all over it. An angel written all over it that, you know, is teaching uh, young Israel. So I guess after the mysterious man disappears from his life, they don't get into that quite at all. I mean, and I don't have a biography on him yet. Yes, I plan on <laughs> studying more on him. Of course, of course. Uh, Israel was periodically hired as a teacher's assistant and the heaters of small villages, the schools of small villages through which they passed. Okay, so they're still together. He would later relate that he took great pleasure in accompanying the children to and from school, using this opportunity to recite prayers with them and tell them Torah stories. The children's innocence and the purity with which they prayed, the Baal Shem Tov explained, caused the almighty great satisfaction. The Metzrichter Magid, the Baal Shem Tov's successor, would later say, if only we kissed a Torah scroll, excuse me, scroll with the same love that my master, the Baal Shem Tov, kissed the children when he took them to Heter as teacher's assistant. After three years of this nomadic lifestyle, Israel was brought by his mentor to the house of a man by the name of Rabbi Mier, M-E-I-R, who assumed guardianship of this still young lad. So yeah, three years, so now he's 10. At, at this, between ages of seven and 10, he's teaching school kids. Now tell me there isn't something off the charts about this soul, you know, right off the bat. And, and not to mention who he came from, from his parents, you know, they were amazing beings as well. Um, so here his, you know, guy, that the master that he's traveling with, hands him over to this Rabbi Mier. Um, and at this point, he's what, like around 10 years old. And he became Israel's first guardian. Rabbi Muir, too, was a hidden Zadok. So now, see, he's following um, unconsciously and not, I mean, without effort, is following in his father's footsteps because his father was a Zadok. And while the people of his town thought him to be a manual laborer, he was, in fact, a great Torah sage. It was in Rabbi Muir's home that Israel was introduced, like his father before him, to the secret fellowship of hidden Zadikim. Now, people might be saying, why was it secret? Because, well, just look, they just came off of a Holocaust. To not only be a Jew was dangerous, but to be a highly proficient, masterful, mystical Jew, that sounds like a Beatles album, Magical Mystery Tour. <laughs> Yeah, I know I'm showing my age. Uh, but to be that in those days was very, very dangerous. And you have to also remember this is all based on humility, being humble, being, um, you know, putting yourself lower than the next person so you can better relate and easier help those downtrodden people. The great men would regularly convene in Rabbi Mir's house to study the mystical works of the Kabbalah. And to pray together, Israel easily absorbed this knowledge, and he soon became the student of the leader 
of this fellowship, the Reverend Rabbi Adam Baal Shem. Rabbi Adam would serve as his longtime mentor, and his teachings laid the foundation for Israel's own work. On Israel's 16th birthday, which we'll get into more on this because this is one of the stories. This is going to be a little excerpt from the story that's coming up. Elijah the prophet appeared to him and described to him the great effects the prayers of simple folk had in heaven. Now, see, we just did this. We recently, in the last um, cafe, we talked about prayer and the importance of prayer and what prayer actually is and what it means. Um, and how essential it is. So here we have the prophet Elijah uh, appearing to um, Israel on his 16th birthday, telling him about you know the pure intent of unwavering faith, which they uttered the words of prayer. Elijah explained resonated in the higher worlds more than the scholarly achievements of great sages. Inspired by his, by his conversations with the prophet, Israel made it his personal mission to engage simple Jews in conversation about mundane matters by inquiring as to their well-being and their families, their health or livelihood. Israel was able to elicit responses rich in the words, praise to God, to read, and of course, you know, it talks about where if you wanna read the full story, which I'm going to be sharing here um, in, in just a, a little bit after we finish this biography. But if, if, of course, if you want to help people, if you want to relate to others, care, genuinely care about them, who they are, their families, their livelihoods. It's not just like, uh, you know, in today's society where not even many people do it anymore. It's because they don't want to be offensive or, yeah, to, to say good morning to someone and ask them how they are. A lot of generations now interpret that as being threatening, as being pushy, as um, infringing on their space. They feel it's violating. If you even just say, good morning, how are you? Uh, believe me, I live in an area that is predominantly filled with college students. And I, every time I pass somebody, I always say, good morning, good afternoon, how are you? And I mean that genuinely which you know, a lot of people don't anymore. It's just used as filler for chit chat because you don't expect somebody to reply. Matter of fact, you, a lot of times they don't want anyone to reply. It's just you know, a, a thing. Um, but I get all kinds of responses, mostly ignored when I say, hello, good morning, how are you? Hello, good afternoon, how are you? Uh, to neighbors that are students. And I'm not picking on college students at all. I'm just saying, this tends to be a thing with them that um, they feel threatened, violated if you say anything towards them, if you're not in their circle, in their bubble. Um, am I going to change? No, because I was raised just like they were. I was raised differently, and, and I still believe that it's not a matter of right and wrong, but I cannot walk past another soul and not acknowledge that soul's presence. I mean, to me, that's God. That's Adonai, that's Hashem. And for me to walk by Hashem and not acknowledge it, to me is a sin. You know, I know other people would see it differently, but 
Anyway, sorry, I got a little off course there. Or did I? Anyway, we'll continue. So when Israel was 18 years old, the Talas community, again, that's the community that had originally um, adopted him after his parents died, suggested a wife for him. This is very common in, um, in Jewish um, society and practice. Little is known about Israel's first wife, and she died soon after their marriage. After his wife's death, Israel was hired as a teacher in the Tlos Heter school. It was at this time that Israel's deep insight into human nature began to shine, and he was often asked to preside over civil disputes between members of the community. So, they, so the town actually made him like their judge, you know, people with, uh, you know, conflicts and, and disagreements and grievances would come to him and, you know, plead their case, and he would help them resolve those matters. A short time later, in 1718, Israel moved to the town of Brody, where he was once again hired as a teacher. In this capacity, Israel was asked to tutor a young orphan who had been adopted by the illustrious Rabbi Gershon of Kitav, renowned for the breadth of his knowledge in both Talmud and Kabbalah. This position eventually led to Israel marrying Rabbi Gershon's sister, Hannah. So those of you who aren't familiar with the term Talmud, T-A-L-M-U-D, and what that is, that is the, um, the book of um, Jewish law and theology. So with uh, Israel being a, a scholar in the Talmud means that he was a scholar in, in Jewish theology and also a scholar in Jewish law. Israel's stay in Brody was short-lived. One of Israel's teachers from the fellowship of the hidden Zedekim instructed him to move to a small town. And so Israel and his wife left Brody and settled in a small village deep in the Carpathian Mountains to the east. Israel spent most of his time there in secluded study and meditation. The young couple supported themselves by mining clay and lime which Hannah transported to neighboring villages using a horse and wagon that Rabbi Gershon had previously bought them. The breathtaking scenery and relative freedom from demands of everyday life allowed Israel to concentrate on his studies and service of God. The Baal Shem Tov would later remember the seven years in the Carpathian Mountains as being the most enjoyable period of his life. I could only imagine. I've seen pictures of the Carpathian Mountains, and they are just breathtaking. And could you just imagine living in such a secluded, private area with the one that you love and, you know, no cares other than your faith and love? And, <laughs> yeah, I'm dreaming. <laughs> I'm dreaming, aren't I? No, we can do that. We can We can achieve that. Um, at least to some extent in this lifetime. Yes, we have to work to live, but remember, you don't live to work. So remember, um, Israel and his wife were very, still very, but they were still very young at this time. So in 1724, on Israel's 26th birthday, he's just now turning 26 and look at everything he's accomplished. The ancient prophet, Ashia Hashaloni, who had taught Torah to Elijah the prophet some 2,500 years earlier, 
appeared to him. She had taught Israel the secrets of the entire Torah, starting that day with the first words of the Torah, and ending exactly 10 years later with the last words of the Torah. In 1730, Israel found employment at a ritual slaughter in, I'm going to try, Shalohus, but soon moved to manage a tavern in Tlost that his brother-in-law had bought for him. During his time in the mountains, Israel had come into contact with local villagers who taught him the healing properties of various herbs and other plants. Now, Israel started applying his newly acquired knowledge by prescribing remedies and writing amulets, excuse me, amulets for locals who were in need of cures for a variety of bodily ailments. Israel's practice was successful and his fame as a Baal Shem, a healer, grew quickly. Increasingly, people from surrounding villages sought out his expertise. Now, some people would say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold up, hold the cart. <laughs> Since we're back in that time period, huh? uh, how can a, a holy person be part of a slaughtering plant or company and then be a bartender and, and actually own and operate a bar? Um, you know, isn't that like, that's, that's sinning, right? That's, that's not right. We've got to look at this from a different perspective. Don't look at it like a lot of us look at the Bible, literally, for face value. It far transcends anything that our minds and our senses could possibly think of. I mean, look at it this way. If you're working a bar, what better way to come into contact with people, especially people who are having hard times? A lot of people turn to alcohol and drugs and things of that nature when they're in hard times. I mean, yes, some do to celebrate, but more than not, it's people who are having a very hard time with life. And what a better vehicle um, to be able to be in contact and help those people. See, and that's the thing I hope with this show that we're that you all are picking up on is to start Again, making that shift from the head to the heart. We talked about all of season four. Well, at least it felt like all of season four. Um, and stop relying on what our senses are telling us and our minds are telling us. I think I've shared in a previous show, if not, I'm sharing it now, is that um, the reality that we know or we believe we know is maybe 10% at the most of what reality truly is. Our senses block out over 90% of what is truly going on in the world and our, everything around us. Now I'm talking realms, dimensions, um, everything around us, above us, below us. Um, and we'll have, yeah, we'll have more shows on that coming up and down the pike. So the people of the mountainous towns, as we just learned, um, you know, showed Israel how to, you know, take herbs and things of that nature, you know, nature faiths, um, how to take herbs and things of that nature to heal people. Thus, that's where the Baal, the Baal Shem 
comes from is that's Hebrew for a healer. So, of course, he's now healing people and helping them and, you know, learn their faith and explore their faith and further their faith. And so now he's becoming more well-known. But Israel Baal Shem was far from an ordinary healer. As much as he aimed to cure his patients' physical illnesses, he sought to heal their ailing spirits. Israel taught them the importance that the Torah places on optimism and joy and encouraged them in their service of God. It was this unique twofold pursuit that earned Israel Balshem the additional affectionate letter, or excuse me, title Tav, which is Hebrew for good. See, you just learned another Hebrew word. Tav means good. Thus giving rise to his popular name, Rabbi Israel Baal Shem Tav. So I know there may be one or two people out there, or we'll just say a person and a half, <laughs> that's saying, wait a minute, back the card up. You just talked about him making amulets and stuff like that. That's that's heresy. That's that's up to you. Um, don't judge. You know, that's that's my thing is. Yes, uh, Baal Shem Tov, what we just learned, you know, learned uh, healing herbs, and he was a giant mystic. I mean, probably one of the greatest mystics in history. Um, so, yeah, making amulets and things of that nature. I mean, you can, a lot of people consider different things amulets. How about your cross necklace? Is that your amulet? Does that protect you? Do you believe it protects you? Do you believe it blesses you? Do you believe it heals you? Do you believe, see, that's an amulet. See, we've got to look at this because, you know, we start screaming pagan and pointing fingers, and we don't realize that looking in the mirror or looking at our own faith, um, how the things that we practice can be interpreted as that as well. Padre Pio, St. Padre Pio talked about his weapon all the time, his rosary. I mean, to him, that was the most powerful thing he had. He actually called it his weapon. So you, people consider that to be an amulet. Um, you know, your Bible. I mean, how many people believe that is a, a, a holy object? Again, an amulet. Does it protect you? Do you feel it protects you? Do you feel it heals you? Do you feel when you open it? Uh, do you feel the energy of the divine? You should. Um, if you don't, um, but not, con not condemning anyone that doesn't, but I'm just pointing out that here you can, you know, dissect things and point at point fingers at people and, you know, call them pagans all you want. When in fact, we all of our faiths, there is not one faith that is not pagan or cultish. And what does cult mean? Cult means anything other than what you normally follow. So if you're Roman Catholic, again, not picking on Roman Catholic, just use an example. So if you're Roman Catholic and somebody of a Jewish faith is standing next to you, to you, that they are in a cult because they're not Roman Catholic. And a lot of Roman Catholics would say, it's my job to convert them. Convert them to what? To Roman Catholicism? What's what's wrong with their what's wrong with what they are? See? Yes, we've talked about that in the past, and we will continue to talk about that probably forever as the show goes on. But again, just to back the card up a little bit for anyone that um, was a bit taken aback by the herbs and amulets. 
I mean, bottom line, what was he doing? He was spreading the word of God and healing people and helping people. Was that wrong? I think not. While the Baal Shemtov expanded his circle of influence, helping his patients one at a time, he kept the full extent of his knowledge and saintliness hidden from the public eye. But in 1734, all this changed. On his 36th birthday, here we go. He's still young. Look at all this. He's just now 36. After six years of intense, unyielding pressure from his longtime mentors, Rabbi Adam and Achia Hashaloni, to publicly reveal his greatness, the Bashit began preaching openly. So at this point, he was just nose to the ground helping people, you know, going into areas where people were impoverished um, and helping and healing. And now, you know, of course, his rabbi, Adam, the mentor, and the um, Achia, Hashalone, which we learned was uh, the prophet Elijah's uh, mentor and teacher, appeared to him. And between the two, convinced him that he needed to start preach, to begin preaching openly. This ushered a new era in Jewish thought. In the Bashit's view, again, that's abbreviation of Baal Shem Tov, the simple blessing of the unlettered Jew was a holy as advanced Torah study. Purity of intent was valued over dry achievement. Joy and humility were to be admired. And even the simplest peasant could serve God through passionate prayer. Jews from far and wide flocked here, just, excuse me, to hear the Baal Shem Tov's holy words and to observe him consumed in prayer. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I I could completely do that. I mean, don't you get the feeling of you're doing that as you're listening to this? And, and I, I'm feeling as I'm reading this. I mean, he's just like vibing through. I mean, just he's that powerful. In 1740, when he felt that his following was sufficiently strong, the Baal Shem Tov moved the center of Hasidism to the small town of Mezibush, where he would live for the rest of his life. Many of the greatest Jewish minds of the generation came to study in the court of the Baal Shem Tov and made Mezibush their home. Rabbi Yaakov Yosef of Polna, Rabbi Penchas of Koritz, and Rabbi Dovber, who would later succeed the as leader of the Hasidim, were just a few of the brilliant scholars who came to hear Baal Shem Tov's wisdom. These faithful students, leaders in their own right, would eventually, after Baal Shem Tov's passing, become the conduits through which Hasidic thought was transmitted to the European Jews. But even then, surrounded by academic geniuses, who clung to his every word, the Baal Shem Tov continued to shower the simple folk with remarkable affection. On Rosh Hashanah in 1746, the Baal Shem Tov had a vision wherein he ascended to heaven and entered the chamber of Mosiach, or Mosiach. The Bashit asked Mosiach, when will the master Mosiach come? Mosiach responded, when your wellsprings 
teachings of Hasidism will burst forth to the farthest extremes. Despite or perhaps because of his popularity, the Baal Shem Tov's teachings were met with strong opposition from much of the traditional Talmudist movement. The opponents of Hasidism were driven by a desire to retain their elite position as well as by their suspicion that the Kabbalistic undertones of Baal Shem Tov's teachings belied his true intentions to promote himself as a messiah, just as Shabtai Z, who had also taught Kabbalah, had done not a century earlier. Their growing distaste for the Bishit's glorification of the ignorant and his unconventional claim that godliness permeates even the most mundane of matters led them to reject his entire doctrine. So here we see, who does this resemble? And again, not comparing at all, but, you know, wasn't this like what we've been taught happened to Jesus is that he, you know, among his own people was, um, as at least that's what we've been led to believe and taught through the New Testament is that his own turned on him. Now, the Jewish people have a completely different take on the Jesus uh, story and life. And we'll get into that in a future episode. But um, here there is no uh, disputing that, you know, there was an uprise against him because people were comparing him to the previous guy who said he was a Messiah. But remember, Baal Shem Tov, you know, Israel never once claimed to be a Messiah. In fact, he didn't want to do any of this. He enjoyed being a simple person and being in hiding in private and helping as many impoverished um, and as people would consider them to be lower class uh, people and, you know, healing and teaching and helping them. He was perfectly beyond happy and blissful and content in doing that. It was because of his teachers asking him to step forward and him obeying that, that, you know, all of this started to come out. Of course, you know, people get jealous when the attention is on you. Of course, people are going to come out of the woodwork and begin to attack you when you are receiving attention, uh, especially as a teacher. If you're starting to receive students, uh, there will be others who are jealous of that and come after you. And no ego or pride, but it happened to me previously when I taught Buddhism. You know, I was sought out and, you know, blasphemed on social media back in those early days when internet was first coming out. Um, yeah, uh, it was, it was quite a mess. The debate would rage on bitterly for several generations in time. The opponents of Hasidic thought would come to appreciate its truth and holiness. Although not all the Talmudists would embrace Hasidism. And despite the ideological differences that would continue to stand in the way, a general atmosphere of mutual respect would replace the initial vicious mudslinging. In the 1750s, we saw a rise of the fringe sect of Judaism led by the infamous Jakob Frank. The Frankist, or Frankist, as they were commonly called, were the spiritual descendants of Shabtai Zvi. And like his predecessor, Frank, or Frank claimed to be the Messiah and sought to create religion that would incorporate both Judaism and Christianity. Both Hasidic and Talmudist rabbis fought hard to put an end to the spreading influence of the heretical Frankists. Okay, I'm going to pause here for a second and, and, and kind of 
give my two bits for the half bit or quarter of a bit it's worth. So we have to remember this is in the mid 1700s is that there was and, and unfortunately still is today a lot of bitterness between the Jews and Christians because, you know, Jews still believe that Christians are, um, you know, criticizing them and accusing them of killing Jesus. Because according to the New Testament, you know, he was handed over to the Romans by the Jews, by his own people. Again, that's, that's the New Testament slash Roman take on it. And there's a whole... A whole thing behind that, which we'll get into in a future show. I'm not going to do that here. Um, but also, you know, so there was that, you know, that untrustness between the two. Um, but do I agree with the, the separation of the two? Absolutely not. You know, you guys that listen to the show any length of time know that I am very transdenominational. You know, I can easily flow from one uh, faith to the other and, you know, find a commonality um, in any faith with other faiths um, because there are so many commonalities, but we just flat out refuse to see those. We tend to and want to focus on the differences, you know, the um, contradictions, I would say, as a lot of people would say, the contradictions, the, the, her the you know, heretics, you know, the heresy. And, and that's just, that's poo-poo. That's, that's garbage. So there, you know, again, I don't know anything about that, um, the guy that claimed to be a messiah or the Frankist. Um, you know, maybe we'll do a show sometime down the road on them. If you guys would like that, let me know, and I'll be more than happy to research that. Uh, but these people were trying to combine or unite Judaism and Christianity. And that's actually happened right now. Um, there is a group called uh, Jews for Christ that are Jewish Christians that are predominantly Jewish, but they incorporate Christianity into their Judaism. I personally, again, raising my hand, personally find nothing wrong with that. I highly applaud them. Um, if any of you who are listening are a Jew for Christ, Please contact me. My contact information is at the end of the show, at the end of every show. I would love, absolutely love to speak with you and, and have you on the show if you would agree to do that, or at least just get some statements from you on um, your background and your history and how you came to be a Jew for Christ and what that means to you and what that faith is all about. I would love to do that. And I'm sure people listening to the show you know, would love to have that information as well. So, I mean, again, getting back to the story here, you know, you can see that back in the mid-1700s, um, you know, there was a, it was a big, big, big no-no to, to do that. There was, you know, supposed to be solid lines between the two. Okay, so in 1759, Baal Shem Tov was chosen to be one of three delegates representing the rabbis in a highly publicized debate with the Frankists in Limburg. Soon after the debate, thousands of Frankists underwent baptism to demonstrate their loyalty to Christianity, while many prominent Jews figures, figures felt relieved by the baptisms because this clearly demonstrated the Frankists cut 
with traditional Judaism, while Shimtab was deeply saddened by the move and said, as long as a diseased limb is connected to the body, there is hope that it may be saved. But once amputated, it is gone and there is no hope. Uh, so he lamented in that. It is said that the distress caused the Baal Shemtav uh, by his ordeal with the Frankists ultimately led to his death. It hurt him that bad. And again, I mean, just because he's a saint doesn't mean he's perfect. Um, you got to remember, he's still human. And that's the thing we have to remember is no one is perfect in human form. Saints and sages are fallible. And I, don't curse me, Roman Catholics, but the Pope is fallible. All beings are fallible. All hierarchy of uh, rabbis and, uh, you know, all kinds of leaders, priests and and pastors and, you know, archbishops and bishops and on and on and on. They're all fallible. I mean, we as to err as human. I mean, that's part of what we are. No matter how holy we are in the inside, we are still operating from a human frame, a human vehicle in a human world, you know, in a physical world. So, you know, yeah, I mean, these things are going to happen. So Baal Shem Tov was so distressed and upset that a lot of Jewish people went through baptism and became Christian. Now, I know a lot of Christians are saying, hooray for our team. See, that's taking the wrong side of it. You know, you shouldn't be taking any sides to this and just, you know, hope that and pray that those people, you know, followed their heart and that they were happy and that their faith um, continued to grow and evolve and, and become something other than what they would have had an opportunity to do before. So on the first day of Shavuot in 1760, surrounded by his most devoted students, Rabbi Israel Baal Shem Tov passed away. The Baal Shem Tov's death left a vacuum in leadership that was initially filled by his son, Svi Hirsch. But on the first anniversary of his father's death, Svi Hirsch announced that his father had appeared to him in a dream and instructed him to transfer leadership to his students, Rabbi Dov Bear. Rabbi Dov Bear soon moved to Mesritz, establishing it as a new center of Hasidism and became known as the Majid of Mesritz. So that is the biography, or very, very brief biography of uh, Baal Shem Tov. And I'm going to share three stories about Baal Shem Tov. And of course, again, I will have links to these and all of the stories uh, from the website um, that all this information came from. If you want to read more, these stories are quite fantastical and they're just amazing. I, I love them. They're just, again, love them. Uh, and there's so much you can gain wisdom from them. So here's the first story. It says, some 300 years ago, there lived an affluent man named Avigador. He once brought a large sum of money to Rabbi Israel Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, to be distributed to the poor on his behalf. Accepting the contribution graciously, the Baal Shem Tov inquired if perhaps Avigador would like a blessing in return. 
After all, the Baal Shem Tov was renowned not only as a great Torah scholar, but also as a righteous individual who had the power to give blessings. No thanks, replied Avgador, arrogantly. I am very wealthy. I own my own properties, and I have servants, plenty of delicacies, and everything else I want. I have more than I need. You have you are very fortunate, replied the Baal Tov. Perhaps you would like a blessing for your family. I have a large and healthy family of which I am very proud. They're, they are a credit to me. I don't need or want anything. Well, then, perhaps you can help me. May I request one thing of you, inquired Rabbi Israel. Can you please deliver a letter to the head of the charity committee in Brody? Certainly, responded Evagador. I live in Brody and would be happy to assist you. In this matter, the Balsham Tov took out a pen and paper, wrote a letter, sealed it in an envelope, and gave it to Evagador. Evagador took the letter, placed it in his jacket pocket, and returned home. But he had so many projects on his mind that by the time he arrived in Brody, he had completely forgotten about the entire encounter with Balsham Tov. Sixteen, one six, sixteen years later, and the Wheel of Fortune suddenly turned. All of Avogador's assets, properties were lost or destroyed. Floods ruined his fields of crops. Fires destroyed his forest. Calamity after calamity, he was left penniless. Creditors took his house and everything he owned. He was forced to sell even his clothing to feed his children. One day, while cleaning out the pockets of an old jacket, he planned to sell. He found a letter. The letter that he had received from Balsham Tov 16 years earlier. In a flash, he recalled his visit and the haughtiness when he thought he had everything. With tears in his eyes, he rushed to finally fulfill his mission and deliver the letter. The envelope was addressed to Mr. Zadok, chairman of the charity committee of Brody. He ran into the street and encountered one of his friends. Grabbing his arm, he said, where can I find Mr. Zadok? Mr. Zadok? You mean Mr. Zadok, the chairman of the charity committee? Yes, I must see him immediately, replied Evgador. He's in the synagogue, said Evgador's friend. I was there only a few minutes ago. Mr. Zadok is indeed a lucky man. Just this morning, he was elected chairman of the charity committee. Huh? Did you catch that? The letter was addressed to the chairman of the charity committee. And Mr. Zadok just now became that. Tell me more about Mr. Zadok, insisted Evagador. Willing to oblige, Evagador's friend continued. Mr. Zadok was born and raised here in Brody. A tailor by profession, he was always down on his luck, never able to make a decent living. He was hardly able to support his family, and they always lived in an abject poverty. He sat in the back of the synagogue, and no one ever took notice of him. Despite working many hours, he never earned much. It was hard for him to scrape together enough money for even a loaf of bread for his family. Recently, however, the tide changed. Mr. Zadok was introduced to a local nobleman, and he made uniforms for all of his servants. The nobleman was very satisfied with Mr. Zadok's craftsmanship, and his business started to pick up. He even received an order for 5,000 uniforms for the army. He became a rich man and gained respect in the eyes of the community. He did not forget the former poverty and gave generously to many, taking an active role in communal affairs 
Just this morning, he was unanimously elected chairman of the charity committee. Hearing this story, Evgador hurried to the synagogue and found Mr. Zadek busy perusing the many requests for financial assistance. He handed Mr. Zadek the letter. Together, they read the words of Baal Shem Tov, penned 16 years earlier, and it read, Dear Mr. Zadok, the man who brought you this letter is named Evagador. He was once very wealthy, but is now very poor. He has paid for his haughtiness. Since just this morning, you were elected chairman of the charity committee. I request that you do all you can to assist him as he has a large family to support. He will once again become successful, and this time he will be more suited to success. In case you doubt my words, I give you the following sign. Your wife is expecting a baby, and today she will give birth to a boy. They had hardly concluded reading the letter when someone burst into the synagogue and exclaimed, Mazel Tov, Mr. Zadkat, Zadok, your wife just had a baby boy. Thanks to Baal Sham Tov's foresight, Avigdor once again became very affluent. This time, he remained humble and was admired by all. So, yeah, I mean, true stories, I believe so, but more so, these are parables that if you read between the lines and read these and listen to these with your heart, there are lessons in here for all of us. Next is... Uh, the story of Baal Shem Tov's 16th birthday. Uh, we covered that briefly um, in his bio, but this goes into more detail. He says, when I was five years old, I was orphaned by both my father and mother. The last word spoken to me by the Holy, my Holy Father before he passed was, Israel, fear nothing but God alone. Consonant with my father's words, I was drawn to walk the fields in the great deep forest near our village. From Heder, which is school, I would make my way to the fields where I would review by heart what I had learned in school. Often I would sleep over the night in the field or the forest. My guardians, who looked after me and several other orphan boys and girls, did not tolerate this behavior of mine to wander in the fields and the forest and dealt severely with me. So past two years, one morning, I heard in the forest the sound of a human voice. I followed the direction of the voice and came upon a figure of a Jew enveloped in tillit and teflon. Now, a tillit is a prayer shawl uh, that Jewish people wear when they're praying. And the teflon is like you, you will see them wear like something on their head. It's like a square cube. And that is uh, a leather pouch or leather box that has um, holy scrolls in it. So he comes across this, you know, this traditional Jewish man praying in the, in the woods, praying with a fervor such as he had never before witnessed. I hid myself behind the trees and derived great pleasure listening to the man's praying. I was enthralled by the extraordinary sight and thought to myself, this holy man must be one of the 36 hidden Zedkim, that's the righteous and saintly people that are in the world. This, or the, excuse me, the Zedek concluded his prayer removed his tillit and his teflon, and began to read from the book of Psalms in a melodious voice. Following his recital of Psalms, 
the man spent some time in a static Torah study. He then gathered his books and his tillet and teflon and placed them in a sack, lifted the sack onto his shoulder and set off on his way. At this point, I stepped out from my hiding place and walked towards him. When the man saw me, he asked, what is a small child doing all alone in the forest? Were you not afraid to be in the forest all by yourself? I answered him, I like the field in the forest because there are no people, the great majority of whom are arrogant and dishonest, I'm not afraid of anything, and I'm an orphan without father or mother. My father, peace be to him, said to me before his passing, Israel, fear nothing but God alone. So I'm not afraid of anything. The man asked me if I was Reb Eliezer's son. When I replied that my father was indeed called by that name, the man took a volume of the Talmud, the tractate Pesachim, from his sack and sat and studied with me for a while. I then joined him on his way without knowing where we were going and what was the purpose of our journey. In our wanderings, we would stop by different periods of time in various cities, towns, villages, and hamlets, sometimes for a few days, sometimes for a week or longer. I never learned the man's name. I would study with him each day. He never accepted alms from anyone, yet he fed and clothed me and looked after my needs all the time. Thus passed three years. One day we stopped in a small settlement and the man said to me, not far from here in the forest, there lives a learned and God-fearing Jew. I will leave you with him for a while. He then took me to the small hut in the woods, handed me over to its resident, and was off. I lived in Reb Mir's hut for four years, during which time he learned with me with great diligence all the time. Each day we would go to the village for daily prayers. None of the villagers were aware that Reb Mir was a sage in a hidden attic. They knew him as a simple workman, a charcoal smelter. In Reb Mir's home, I became, that means Reb means rabbi, became familiar with the ways of hidden Zadikim and their leader, the great sage of the Zadik, Rabbi Adam Balshem. At the conclusion of my years with Reb Mir, I was accepted into the society of the hidden Zadikim and again began journeying from town to town and from settlement to settlement on various missions which the society's leadership placed upon me. Before having attained 16 full years, I had gained a significant knowledge of the teachings of Kabbalah and would occasionally pray with the mystical meditations of the Luranic Kabbalistic tradition taught to me by the holy and awesome hidden Zadok Reb Hayim. On my 16th birthday in 1714, I was in a small village. The local innkeeper was a simple Jew who could barely read the prayers and was completely ignorant of the meaning of their words. Yet he was extremely devout Jew whose custom was to say regarding everything on every occasion, blessed be he forever and ever. His wife, the innkeepress, would constantly avow, praise be his holy name. That day I went to meditate alone in the field in accordance with the practice instituted by the early sages to set aside time on one's birthday for private contemplation. I secluded myself, recited chapters of Psalms, and meditated upon the unifications of the divine names as prescribed in the teachings of Kabbalah. 
Thus engrossed, I was completely unaware of my surroundings. Suddenly, I beheld Elijah the prophet standing before me, a smile on his lips. In Rebmir's home, and in the company of other hidden Zedekim, I had, on occasion, merited a revelation of Elijah the prophet, but never before on my own. So I wondered at the reason for this unexpected vision. I also could not understand the significance of the prophet's smile. Elijah said to me, You are toiling mightily, investing great effort, concentration to meditate upon the unifications of the holy names implicit in the verses of the Psalms compiled by David, the king of Israel. On the other hand, Aaron Shlomo, the innkeeper, and Zlata Rivka, the innkeepress, are completely unaware of the unifications that emerge from the utterances, Blessed be he forever and ever expressed by the innkeeper, and praise be his holy name, uttered by the innkeepress. Yet these words resonate through all the worlds, causing a greater stir than the unifications configured by the greatest Zadokim. Elijah the prophet went on to explain to me that the great pleasure that God derives from words of gratitude and praise uttered by men, women, and children, especially by simple folk, and especially when this is done on a consistent basis, reflecting a pure faith, wholesome heart, and a state of perpetual attachment to God. From that point on, I embarked upon a new method of serving God to bring about the speaking of words of praise to God. Wherever I went, I would talk to people inquiring after their health, their children, their livelihood, and they would all reply with expressions of praise to the Almighty. Thanks to God, blessed be his name, and the like, each after his or her manner. For many years, I pursued this practice at a conference of the Fellowship of Hidden Zedekim. It was resolved to adopt this method of divine service, which in turn became the beginning of an approach which stressed the importance of brotherly love toward every Jew, regardless of his or her degree of Torah knowledge or spiritual attainment. So again, True story? I'm sure. Parable? Definitely. Um, look at it. It's, it's, listen to it again. It's right there. Is that it doesn't matter if you don't, like these people, they didn't truly realize what they were saying or the inner workings of what they were saying when they were praising um, Elohim. They were just doing it from the passion in their heart. They were praying or saying um, or praising God from their heart. And as the prophet Elijah remarked, that sounded so brightly and beautifully in the heavens, more so than Baal Shem Tov in the woods doing his meditation practice and reciting Psalms and, you know, and things of that nature. So here are these simple people doing a very simple practice with all of their heart was more powerful than a very learned master and scholar who was doing it from his, what folks, his mind. Again, remember, talking about shifting from the mind to the heart. We always will. We've got, 
it's it's such a thing. I shouldn't say you've got to do it. You don't have to do anything. It's your free will. But I'm saying that if you can make that shift or at least start making that shift, your faith will go to a level you have never experienced before. And as long as you keep making that consistent effort, as um, the prophet Elijah said, making that consistent effort will continue to cause that evolution of you spiritually and in your faith and your soul, which is what we're all here for anyways, to learn, grow, evolve, and help others, other souls. And speaking of growing your faith and your prayer and your practice daily, I won't play the advertisement because I know this is already running long, but check out the Oblates of Perpetual Light. I'll have a link in the show description um, that you can click on and go to the website and join if you would like. Um, it's a very simple group um, that can take help you do exactly what the prophet Elijah was saying. By taking your practice to the next level, your prayer to the next level, your spirituality, your faith, your soul to the next level. It's very simple, very easy, and it's absolutely free. So one more story, and then we'll close. And this is one of my favorites. <laughs> this is really good. Uh, it's called The Man Who Crossed the River with a Handkerchief. In the years before, he went public with his teachings and founded the Hasidic movement. Rabbi Israel Baal Shem Tov would often wonder about the countryside where the Jews of Eastern Europe lived in isolated hamlets or managed lonely wayside inns. Rabbi Israel would mingle with these Jews, drawing inspiration from their simple faith and dispensing words of encouragement in turn. One day, the Baal Shem Tov arrived at a small crossroads inn, many miles distance from the nearest Jewish community. He was warmly invited in and served a refreshment by the innkeeper's family. Where's your father? He asked the children. He's praying, they replied. Rabbi Israel settled down to wait for his host. An hour passed, then two. It was late afternoon by that time, and the innkeeper emerged from his room. After greeting his guests, he apologized for his long absence. I am an ignorant Jew, he explained shamefacedly. I can barely pronounce the words from the prayer book and deciphering its instructions, written in vowless Hebrew, is beyond me. So I have no choice but to recite the entire prayer book from cover to cover every day. Perhaps I can be of assistance to you, the rabbi Israel said. For the next hour, he sat with the innkeeper patiently, instructing him on the proper use of the prayer book. On small slips of paper, Rabbi Israel wrote out the simple Yiddish morning prayers, special edition for Mondays and Thursdays, grace after meals, afternoon prayers, evening prayers for Shabbat and Rosh Hodesh or Rosh Hashanah and so on and inserted them to mark the proper place in the innkeeper's prayer book. Thank you so much, said the innkeeper. With Rabbi Israel took his leave to resume his journey. Now I can begin to pray like a proper Jew. But the innkeeper's joy was short-lived. Later that day, the prayer book inexplicably fell from its shelf and every last slip of paper. This is before sticky notes, folks. <laughs> every last slip of paper inserted by the Baal Shem Tov fluttered from its pages. 
Woe is me, cried the innkeeper. Who knows how many months will pass until a learned Jew will again come this way? Determined not to let this opportunity praying properly escape him, he grabbed the prayer book and the notes and ran off in the direction that his guest had gone. After several miles of brisk walking, he finally sighted the Baal Shem Tov far ahead. From the distance he saw Rabbi Israel reach a river. How will he cross? Wondered the innkeeper. This time of year, the water is too deep and swift to ford. He was about to shout a warning when he saw Rabbi Israel spread his handkerchief on the water, step onto it as if it were a sturdiest of a raft, glide smoothly across and disappear into the woods on the opposite bank. In a flash, the innkeeper was at the water's edge, spreading his handkerchief on the water. He stepped onto it and glided across and ran down the path Rabbi Israel had taken. Wait, Rabbi, he called. Wait, you cannot go until you mark my prayer book again. All your notes have fallen out. Hearing the man calling out to him, Rabbi Israel stopped and turned to see his recent host running toward him, clutching his prayer book in one hand and the slips of paper in the other. How did you get here? asked Rabbi Israel in amazement. How did you cross the river? With my handkerchief, same as you, replied the simple Jew. By the way, that's some trick you've got there. I never would have thought it could be done that way. I think, said Baal Shem Tov slowly, that God is extremely satisfied with your prayers as they are. Perhaps you should continue to pray just the way you have up until now. I absolutely love that story. That is one of my all-time favorite faith stories. And it, it again, it's back to that, where is your heart? doesn't matter where your knowledge level is. It doesn't matter what your skill level is. It doesn't matter how much theology you know or don't know. Where is your heart? If your heart is in it, you are doing the right thing. You can't go wrong as long as it's coming from the heart. You are helping and not hurting. It's just, wow, that is, again, Absolutely one of my all-time favorite stories. So, folks, I will wrap things up here, brothers and sisters. Infinite thanks, blessings, and love to getting to this point. We're going to uh, have our prayers, requests, and updates. So please don't stop listening. Please stay tuned. There's so many people, so many people in need of our prayers from our heart. This week's prayer request and updates are as follows. We do have an update on Jan, who has heart arrhythmia. Uh, she was able to meet with a doctor this past week, and he was recommending an ablation, uh, but he's given her several options for her to weigh over, and he wants to see her again in another six weeks, and that what she's experiencing right now is not life-threatening at the moment. So let's please keep her in our heart, thoughts, and prayers. Also, please uh, keep Terry in your heart, thoughts, and prayers. Uh, Denise, who we will continue to pray for as long as she needs us to, Nicholas um, is still in uh, waiting for that results. Uh, his, um, he has had multiple heart transplants and his heart is failing. He's having issues with a, a valve 
We've talked about that over the past several weeks. Uh, his mother posted this week and said that his uh, records have been sent to Chicago to a hospital there, who is one of the six hospitals in the United States that's doing this trial surgery that's an, a less um, invasive surgery um, to replace and repair um, his my, one of his valves and because he won't be able to survive an open heart surgery. So let us please keep Nicholas and his family in your heart, thoughts, and prayers. Uh, Haley, who has terminal ovarian cancer, is, bless her heart, she's so tired, but she's hanging in there. Her hospice nurse gave her such an incredible gift this past week. Now, we have to remember that her husband, Taylor, and her four-year-old son, Weston, will be left without her um, when she passes um, so she's doing everything she can to make memories of herself for Weston. Her hospice nurse actually brought her a beautiful teddy bear. And when you squeeze the teddy bear, you hear a heartbeat. And it's actually Haley's heartbeat. The nurse recorded Haley's heartbeat and went out on her own and purchased this bear and had the heartbeat put inside the bear. So anytime her son misses her... When she passes, all she has to do is squeeze the bear, and he can hear his mother's heartbeat. Now, for Taylor, her husband, the hospice nurse, gave him a picture of the wavelength of Haley's heartbeat. And that was just beautiful and amazing and sad at the same time. So let us please keep Haley, Taylor, and Weston and the hospice care nurse in our heart, thoughts, and prayers. Uh, Maudie just found out this week that uh, from a biopsy that she is uh, the rejection of the transplanted heart is less. Uh, it's still there vaguely, but it's the, it's uh, you know, nonetheless it's there, but it's not anything severe at the moment. Um, also, she found out this week that her health insurance is maxed out and they are not paying anything else for the rest of the year, but they do still continue to expect payments from her. So try to figure that out. She's stressed and understandably, and this is a time when she does not need stress. So let us please keep Maudie and her family in our heart, thoughts and prayers. Stephanie, Sarah, Kia, Elaine, Bob, Clyde, Lisa, CJ, Lana, Megan, Molly, Gwen, Octavia, Trish, Chad, and family. Brother Ashley and his family, Brother Abel, Mike S. and Kelly, Tanya, Cheryl, Elijah, his grandmother Janet, Andrew, Father Mike, Eddie, and Eddie's mother Becky, Emma, Jean, Kathy and Tony, Michael T., Kyra, um, Courtney Moore. I do have an update on Courtney. Um, she is awaiting word from Duke um, University Hospital. Um, she had some things done a few weeks ago, and she's supposed to be going back there, I believe, this coming week to see about um, getting on a heart transplant list. Let us please keep her in our heart, thoughts, and prayers. Um, and last but certainly not least, James and Linda. And if you are in need of prayers, please, please, please don't hesitate to contact me and let me know. I love to pray, and people who listen to the show love to pray, so let us pray for you. And you can do that by contacting me. My information is at the end of the show and at the end of every show. And now our closing prayer and blessing. This is a prayer for giving thanks and taking comfort when ill. Holy One of blessing, your presence fills creation. 
You know my life, my story, my triumphs and losses. You understand me completely. I feel you with me in times of illness, injury, doubt, and pain, or strength and happiness. Be with my body and spirit now as I travel a winding road from illness toward recovery. Stay near to remind me I am never alone on this journey. When the sun rises, reassure me that I will rise as well. When the sun reaches noon, renew my hope as I look up to be warmed by its radiance. When the sun slides towards twilight, I will give thanks for a day that has lifted my spirit. Through every long night, stay by my side. Comfort me as phantoms of fear fly through my imagination. Then out into my darkened room, help me contain them. Hold my hand. Bless my many caregivers. They freely give skill, compassion, or companionship, and the fruits of their deep knowing and loving kindness. Living in this interlude of uncertainty, I feel guided toward the misty shores of recovery. Help me see your face shining upon me as my strength grows, self-confidence increases, and faith deepens day by healing day. Surely I'm cared for silently through time and space. May the words of my mouth, thankful meditations of my heart, remind me now and always of your sustaining love and everlasting healing powers. Amen. I so hope and pray that you've enjoyed the show and that you found everything that you're searching for here and more with us. Please feel free to stop by anytime, all the time. You are family. If this show has helped you, please, please, please share it with as many people as possible. Also, subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever format you listen to. That helps move the show up in those formats so when someone does a general search, they're more likely to find the show. And if the show has really helped you and you have the means, please consider making an offering. Offerings are a great way to help sustain and improve the show, as well as the Faith and More ministry. Offerings can be made through the Cash App. The show's cash tag is dollar sign Faith and More, or you can find us at cash.app forward slash dollar sign faith and more and don't forget about our youtube channel it's a fun place folks you can watch videos of weekly ask angel questions where people write me and ask me questions and i respond uh, on youtube you can also watch me do bi-weekly sermons and homilies also audio of our shows are uploaded to youtube where you can listen and much much more just go to youtube.com forward slash at Faith and More podcast. Next is prayers. I love to pray and our Faith and More family love to pray. So let us pray for you. There are two ways to do this. The first is to email me directly at faithandmorepodcast at gmail.com. The second way is through our website. There is a form at the bottom of the website and the website address is faithandmorepodcast.wixsite.com forward slash my dash site. And there are always links to all of these things in the show notes for and description for each show. So until next time, have a blessed week and know that each and every one of you 
are in my heart and in my prayers. Bless you.